Welcome to The Whole Steward, the holistic approach to wealth from a Christian worldview. I'm your host, Andrew Stanton, and I'm glad you've joined. There's a machine invented in the 20th century which has changed our lives fundamentally in a way not seen since maybe the invention of the wheel. I don't know, but I'll venture to say that life will never be the same again. It's opened the door to a new approach to how we interact with each other, especially in the economy. We'll talk CBDCs today on The Whole Steward. Well, this is episode number 40, and I'm so thankful you're listening. You know, that invention, can you guess it? I'm talking about an invention that has fundamentally changed our lives. Now, you might be thinking, well, maybe he's talking about the airplane or uh, the mass production of the automobile, or maybe he's talking about the invention of steel on a mass basis or the railroads or or what am I talking about? Well, as you might have guessed it, because we're talking about CBDCs today, that is the computer. I'm talking about the computer. This machine has changed our lives fundamentally. It's changed the way we interact with each other, the way that we shop for our food, the way that our food is grown, the way that our water gets to us. It's changed the way that we send our mail. In fact, I have a computer in my pocket, which is very powerful. I do my mail on it. I listen to the podcasts on it. I do my banking on it. I watch TV on it. I play games on it. I do all these things endlessly. Everything is through this screen, and behind the screen is sitting a computer. But it's not only that. We have embedded computers all over the place. There are computers in control of all the valve systems, for example, that get our water to us every day. There are computers in control of everything in your vehicle, from the throttle system to the brakes to the infotainment, which you might think, oh yeah, there's a computer there, but what's controlling the lights, what's controlling everything in the vehicle is controlled by a computer. Computers have fundamentally changed our lives. In fact, uh, there are a few people who absolutely refuse to use a computer, and I'm not talking to you because You can't even hear this podcast. You have to use a computer to listen to this podcast. That's just the way it is nowadays. Uh, The podcast and the video is hosted on computers, massive uh, server farms of computers, Uh, big data. You've heard a lot of people talk about AI. We're not going to talk about that today, but that is one of the uses of computers. There are so many. What I want to focus in on today is something that I've been wanting to talk about for a while. Uh, There is a video I'm going to take us through, and it is about CBDCs. Now, I'm sure unless you've been living under a rock somewhere, you have heard about central bank digital currencies. Now, why should we concern ourselves with this development? This is You might say a logical step in the use of computers. Well, let's put computers in charge of every transaction, 
every financial interaction, every exchange of value that we have with one another in the economy, let's put a computer in charge of that. And now, who's ever in control of the algorithms running on those computers can control the transactions. That is the logical step, but let's get there in a logical manner. I want to take us back a few years to a video that was aired by the IMF. It was a forum that they hosted online during the year 2020 of all times. Now, before I jump into that, shout out to the Corbett Report. James Corbett digs in as an independent journalist to a lot of these issues and exposed this to me even back then in 2020. So it's not a new video, but it is something that I wanted to share with you if you haven't seen it. James Corbett does a lot of articles and videos in a manner such that the big tech platforms don't want them around. So just be aware of that. I obviously don't agree with everything and I do not believe and have not observed that he comes at it from a Christian worldview, but there is really good research there. So shout out to the Corbett Report for exposing this video. Now, before we jump in, I want to just kind of set the stage and think about this. These are big government agencies that are overseeing or, you know, pushing this agenda. And we'll see why I have concerns about it. But before that, this is kind of to set the tone for the whole discussion. Listen to this. And it's a very famous quote. I'm sure you'll recognize it. But this is uh, Ronald Reagan a while back. He said this. The nine most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. I am from the government and I am here to help. The nine most terrifying words in the English language. Now, our government, the history of our government in the United States in particular, has done a lot of really good things. But that's mostly because it was set up by people who experienced governments that weren't doing a lot of really good things. And we have also, over the course of our history, fought against massive movements of governments not doing really good things. But if you hear those nine words, does that make you feel good and safe? Or does it give you concern like it did to Ronald Reagan? Now, uh, that sets the tone for what we're going to see today. So let's jump into this video. I'm going to play some clips and then I'll comment as we go. Uh, let me share my screen here. If you're listening, you will be just fine. I will explain and you will hear everything. If you're watching, you can see what's on the screen. And let me tell you, this is not the most exciting webinar or forum that I've ever watched. It definitely is one of the most boring, but I have gone through the whole thing so you don't have to. I'm going to share the important parts with you, and that's all you really need to know. This video includes some important people like Kristalina Georgieva, uh, Managing Director of the IMF, also, Ahmed Abdul Karim 
Al-Khalifi, governor of the Saudi Arabian Monetary Authority. Also, Augustine Karstens, director general from the BIS. And, of course, our very own Jerome Powell, chairman of the Fed. Now, to jump in, let's just set the tone with a little bit from Jerome Powell. Including the, the Fed Now service. We think it's important that any potential, potential uh, CBDC would serve as a complement to and not a replacement for cash and current private sector digital forms of the dollar, such as commercial bank money. Uh, you ask about Libra, and, and I agree. So there you have Jerome Powell saying, I don't see this as a replacement for cash. Now, a lot of the concern is you hear, oh, well, you know, CBDC is going to completely replace cash and we're going to have to use computers for every single transaction, no matter what. Well, at least in 2020, this is October 19th, 2020. There he is saying, well, look, we don't, we, we don't see this replacing cash. It's just in addition to that. But hang on, because we see Augustine jump in from the BIS and say that they have. Now, in all our analysis on CBDC, in particular for the use of general, to the general use, uh, we tend to establish the equivalence with cash. Uh, and there is a huge difference there. Uh, for example, in cash, uh, we don't know, for example, who's using a $100 bill today. We don't know who is using a 1,000 peso bill today. Uh, a key difference in, with the CBDC is that central bank will have absolute control on the rules and regulations that will determine the use of that uh, expression of central bank liability. And also we will have the technology to enforce that. Those, are, those two issues are extremely important and that makes a huge difference with respect to what, uh, to what so did you catch that the central bank will have absolute control over the use of this digital currency now you've heard the quote and i i don't know who said it but if power corrupts then absolute power corrupts absolutely and i can just see this absolute power where every economic transaction would go through this central hub could easily become corrupt. And they, as he just said, would have the power to enforce that. And he's saying, don't confuse that with cash because with cash, you don't know who's using it. You can go and you can have a transaction with your friend and pass him a hundred dollar bill. And that exchange of value is private to you and him. Whereas with CBDC, it's not because the record of the transaction goes through the central bank. Uh, 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 therefore, I think it, this, this lends itself to design carefully CBDC in such a way that they will not be a vehicle for fragmentation, for uh, financial instability, uh, and, and for spillovers. Therefore, I, I, I don't think that by, the, by themselves, C CBDC is a threat to the international uh, monetary system. 
Okay, interesting. He's saying that if we design them carefully, there won't be fragmentation in the system. And that fragmentation, he's saying, would cause instability and spillovers, which I'm not sure what spillovers are. If somebody knows, please email me. But he's saying, I don't think it's a threat to the international monetary system. I'm not seeing this as a threat. I'm just saying if we design it correctly, we will have financial stability. Let's keep going. Uh, for example, in the issue of currency substitution, if, uh, if, if uh, an advanced economy issues a CBDC and somebody in a third country wants to, to use it, it requires, it will require the consent of the central bank of the residence of that person. Uh, therefore, the, the, the degree of control will be fa far bigger. Now, this, I think it's, a, it's good news because I think that it really, it really provides the ground for us to think on how can we use CBDC to, to really obtain these higher objectives of facilitating payments internationally. How are you going to, to make them to reduce costs, to, to, to enhance inclusion? Uh, how are we going to, to make this route uh, run smoothly? That is something that so far we haven't achieved. Uh, there are many efficiency gains that can be captured, and uh, I think our concentration should be there. So the degree of control will be far bigger. Did you catch that? Now, of course, he's saying this and painting it in a positive light, saying, hey, this is a good thing. We'll be able to control things better. We'll stop crime, blah, blah, blah. But remember, I set the tone with Reagan's uh, quote, the nine most scary words that you could hear. Now, after Augustine kind of says this whole thing, Jerome Powell jumps in and he brings a perspective that's more from the American standpoint. And listen to what he says carefully. Needed to happen quickly or imminently. In fact, I, I actually do think this is one of those issues where it's more important for the United States to get it right than it is to be first. Um, given the dollar's important role globally, it's essential that we remain on the frontier of research and policy development. The dollar is the world's principal reserve currency, and there continues to be large uh, global demand for Federal Reserve notes. There's about $2 trillion worth of Federal Reserve notes in circulation, and we estimate that somewhere close to half of that value in notes is held outside of the United States. <clears throat> Use of and trust in the dollar from, uh, comes from the reliable rule of law, strong and transparent institutions, deep financial markets, and an open capital account. A healthy and efficient payment system demands these features, which reach far beyond the merely technological. Isn't that interesting? So he's saying, look, the reason why the U.S. dollar is what it is today is because of the reliable rule of law, strong and transparent institutions, deep financial markets, of course, and an open capital account. So I'm focusing here on the rule of law and the strong and transparent institutions. You see, the U.S. Constitution is the supreme law of the land. It's the final say. It's the document by which all cases of legal appeal end up going up to the Supreme Court, and their job is to interpret the Constitution, the supreme laws of the land, and rule accordingly. And let me tell you, and we've talked about this before on The Whole Steward, 
those documents were not written lightly. They were not just, you know, penned on the back of a napkin for for no reason. Hey, you know, I got a good idea. You know, it was very carefully thought out, very carefully crafted, huge struggle to ratify the Constitution and the laws. And he's appealing to the fact that America, as bad as it is today, is still one of the the best places around. That's why so many people still want to get here. Now, if we as the citizens give up the desire for that transparency and the desire for that rule of law, we will follow the course of history of every nation that has given that up and it will follow the the course of tyranny. That's just the way things go. Let's continue from Jerome Powell. So we do think it's more important to get it right than to be the first. And getting it right means that we not only look at the potential benefits of a CBDC, but also the potential risks and and also recognize the important trade-offs that have to be thought through carefully. We have a responsibility both to the U.S. and to the world that any steps taken for a U.S. uh, digital currency be taken safely. We're absolutely committed to the soundness of the dollar and to safe and efficient U.S. dollar payment systems. So in addition to assessing the benefits, and and there may well be benefits, there are also some quite difficult uh, policy and operational questions that need to be thoroughly Evaluate. And just to mention a few, I, I would mention um, the need to uh, protect a CBDC from cyber attacks, counterfeiting, and fraud, the question of how a CD- CBDC would affect monetary policy and financial stability, um, and also how could a CBDC prevent illicit activity while also preserving user privacy and security. Assuming that those things can be resolved, yes, there are potential benefits, but it's no that's that's going to take a lot of work and thought, we believe. So they're not simple questions, and the answers are going to need to be comp- comprehensively understood. Um, there. He's being honest in that, look, they're pointing out potential benefits to this transition, but there's also risks, and he names three of them there. You know, he's articulating here that this is not exactly a walk in the park. And like him or hate him, what the Federal Reserve does. He's kind of standing here saying like, look, this isn't all roses and there's a lot of risks and uh, we need to get it right. And I can appreciate that he's saying that, but how do you get absolute and total control of every economic interaction? How do you get that right? Maybe by not doing it or maybe by the rule of law. But again, they're talking about this on a global scale. These are worldwide institutions coming together and trying to do this on a global scale, at least collaborate on a global scale. So it makes it difficult. It's hard to see a silver lining here. It's interesting that Kristalina, the way she uh, responds to Jerome Powell, uh, to give her credit, it might just be lip service. I don't really know. Let me know in the comments below or send me a message. Well, thank you. Thank you, Jay. so very important to indeed keep this balance between uh, aspiring to capture the benefits uh, for people, for the economy, uh, but also uh, be sure that we do it uh, right. Thank you. I am uh, so uh, comforted listening to you, Jay. Uh So she's so comforted listening to Jay talk about how, uh, you know, we need to be careful, we need to get it right, there's these risks and all this stuff. Are you comforted? Let me know. I want to hear from you. Now, 
Let's continue on. One last piece from this video. Like I said, it was very long, very difficult to get through. I did it for you so that you don't have to. Uh, one last piece from Ahmed. So just to set the context here, Kristalina asked him or was mentioning, and they started talking about how the, they have the need for, or they could use this for a comprehensive universal ID system, a digital ID. Reasons, in fact. But a key hurdle to greater inclusion would be the lack of uh, comprehensive and reliable, uh, what you call it, the identity system, uh, whose information can be trusted in other jurisdictions. Uh, I agree that offering such a system uh, has to be a cornerstone uh, stone of uh, global efforts to improve both national and uh, cross-border payments. This okay, so if we want to do this, national and international CBDC system, we're going to need an identity system. So now you're going to have this digital ID. Everybody's going to have one if you want to participate. And they're going to go on to talk about how important this will be. And they want the information in there to be reliable and so on and so forth. How are you feeling about now? Does this make you feel uh, better? Remember, this is October of 2020. And again, shout out to the Corbett Report for bringing it to our attention. Back then, certainly there's been a lot of developments uh, since back then, but it's important to keep tabs on where we're at and where we're going. There's a website here that is very interesting. Central Bank Digital Currency Tracker uh, at the AtlanticCouncil.org. And you can see it's a very interactive map of which countries have launched a CBDC already, which ones are in the pilot stages, which ones are development, research, interactive. So you can see uh, launched having launched uh, a CBDC is some smaller countries. I wouldn't have expected like Nigeria and Jamaica and the Bahamas, a few more of the big players like China, Russia, Australia, Saudi Arabia, Japan, India. So these are all countries that are in pilot programs right now. And then there are countries that are in development. So Jerome Powell, true to his word, even today, the U.S. is a bit slower moving. They're in development right now. So the U.S. is developing this. Canada, Mexico, uh, Brazil, and then a lot of the European countries like the United Kingdom and uh, other European countries. And then there's a bunch of other countries, uh, mostly in South America, in Africa, and some of the South uh, Asia countries, Southern Asia countries, that are in the research stages. So that's where we stand today. You can see some of the concerns that I have. When we come back, I want to dive into why is this such a concern? You may already have been going there, but I'll give you a few more details and my thoughts on the matter next on The Whole Steward. Hi, this is Gary Pinkerton with Gary's Gulch Podcast. You are listening to The Whole Steward with Andrew Stanton, one of the best researched shows by a man of true passion. Now that you know more, go out and grow more. Welcome back. So let's look at 
a video that is an interview with a particular lawyer. And the video is done by Rebel Capitalist uh, with George Gammon. Shout out to them. If you aren't following George Gammon and you like to geek out on this stuff, I highly recommend his channel. He's got two different channels that I follow, Rebel Capitalist. Uh, he does a lot, a lot of live videos. And then uh, the George Gammon channel where he gets a little more technical on the whiteboard and all that stuff. But listen to this clip with Robert Barnes. He's a lawyer talking about, and this is a recent video now, they're talking about the the effects of CBDC. And what is this going to really mean for us? If you want to listen to the whole thing, it's 54 minutes long. I'm not going to play the whole thing. We'll just listen to a clip now. Just to prove reasonableness and necessity in case either an insurance company or the government second guesses a bill, they had to disclose what it was all for. And in order to enforce the mandate, all the medical records were going to the IRS. Now, he's talking about Obamacare there. He's talking about how does the government end up in these situations where they're going to collect this information and sort of enforce things through the centralized mechanisms that they have. So he's talking about Obamacare and how people have to uh, turn over their medical records now. So it's not every financial transaction, but it is the medical records. That's what he's talking about. The IRS has everybody's medical records for the last 10 years. And I mean, I ended up filing suit on it and we stopped them from getting it to the scale they wanted to at the time. And this was 10 years ago. We filed two big lawsuits. They thanked my client for uh, by putting him under massive criminal investigation for five years. That was the payback for him ratting out the IRS and what they were doing. But you combine those records, tax and financial records, with uh, the information that they're gathering through Facebook and people's social media activities. It's, I can buy a database right now and have 50 data points on a person on what they said on Facebook, what they said on Twitter, what they said in public space, what magazines they subscribe to, uh, what, you know, there's a reason why they track you on the internet in terms of all the different sites you go to. That information is being sold to third parties that now have it on people around the world. And so some people are really off the grid. Some people would be shocked that the, I, 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 I have access to as much as 400 data points on a single individual. I use it in jury selection. Uh, from private vendors that's legally available already. Combine that with their medical records and their tax and financial records that the IRS gets to gather. And remember, the IRS can already gather your bank records in a case before the U.S. Supreme Court right now. Okay, so before we go on, did you hear that? Lawyers can buy from third parties all this information uh, about you for jury selection. So they can know about the jurors they can see your Facebook posts. They can see all this data that uh, is mined about you. And this is the effects of the invention of the computer. Now, computers have improved our lives tremendously in countless ways. Uh, I could go on and on about the benefits of computers. In fact, I myself am a computer programmer. But if you are looking at the side effects or the negative effects. This is one of them. Data mining is incredibly easy now. Just so easy. And you might be one of those, like he said, that are completely off the grid. Uh, but if you are, you're not listening to this. Computers are tracking 
everything. And lawyers can pay to find that information. Let's keep going. Well, they want to gather records without telling you that they're doing so. Right now, if they go to your bank, they're supposed to tell you that they're getting those records from the bank about you. They, they, they've been using different excuses to get around that. And the U.S. Supreme Court, they're asking the U.S. Supreme Court to give them the approval to not even notify you. So if they have all of your bank records. So wait, they can get your bank records. And the, the, the case now is that they want to be able to get access to that without you even being notified. Wow. Transactions, they build all of that into a database and, and they've, then they've created a social, a, a social credit score system already. Like an algorithm, they, yeah. Exactly. Then they can implement and enforce it through a central bank digital currency. But you're right, there's certain uh, technical components they need to implement. And those technical components require revisions in the law as they currently exist. And that's what we need to be aware of. So we need to know what those technical points are. So when we see them, and when we see the central planners trying to implement them, that's how we push back. You, you've yeah. you've got to you've got to really identify the pressure points, because if you just try to attack the whole thing, then it's just completely overwhelming. Or if you get hyper focused on Fed balance sheet with individuals and with this point of sale software, and maybe a couple of others that you might point out, that's how we win. That that's how we take our energy and and come together as a group and really push back efficiently. So a lot was being said there. Uh, you heard the term social credit score. This is probably not the first time you're hearing that. Financial credit score, your FICO score, is the history of your payments. What loans do you have? What debt do you have? What income, you know, how do you pay those debts? What is the history? And so, you know, lenders can use that as a way to decide, hey, you know, am I going to give you a loan or not. But the social credit score is something that has not been tried yet in the U.S. And that is a much broader thing. It's saying, hey, not only what is your, you know, debt history or your, your financial history for a lender to judge how good of a borrow you're going to be, but what is your social history? What are your beliefs? What are the things you say? Where do you go? What do you eat? How much gas do you burn in your car? Uh, what do you teach your children? How do you carry yourself through your social life? And that social capital aspect, the stewardship aspect from a Christian worldview is going to be leading a very particular uh, walk of life, the straight and narrow road. And as you know, throughout history, Christianity has often been labeled a problem. And in the name of Christianity, a lot of bad things really have been done. Uh, but this social score, very well, if the wrong person at the wrong time decides that uh, your social score, the things that you do in your life, don't add up, then they can enforce their regulations upon you not by having to knock on your door and say, excuse me, sir, you're coming to jail. They can just enforce it through economic means, through, hey, your payment system doesn't work uh, in your CBDCs. Back in 2020, they were saying, hey, you know, we're, we're going to use cash. We're going to use CBDC. We see a place for all of these things. Okay, fine and dandy. How do you get around that? 
I highly recommend listen to George Gammon if you're interested in this stuff. He talks about it all the time. But one of the things he mentions is how do they get around that? Well, they would need to implement and change the point of sale software when you have a transaction. So if you go to the grocery store and you buy beef instead of chicken, the financial institutions that process the payment for that, they don't know what you were buying. All they know is Andrew went to Sprouts and he paid this much money. They don't know, oh, he bought chicken or beef or whatever. But if they want to enforce the social credit score through the central bank digital currency, all they would need to do is have a central processing place in which they also know the details of the transaction. And that is something we really need to look out for. That's what he's talking about there. The technical aspects that we look out for. If they want to know, hey, did he buy chicken or did he buy beef? That level of detail could easily be enforceable. Now, you might say, well, Andrew, who, that's just food. There's, there's not really any big deal about that. Look, the freedom that you and I enjoy, the fact that I can stand here right now and speak to you from this microphone did not come free and will not last if we do not stand up for it. And so we need to pay attention to these things. I don't personally think it's good that every transaction be run through a central processing uh, facility. How do they accomplish that? Well, they would require the, the point of sale software to change and report all of that, even if the person was paying with cash. Also, keep in mind that there are states, like for example, Ron DeSantis down in Florida, they're making laws like outlawing CBDC and all this stuff. Like that is really kind of a political ploy because it's not really actually getting at the root issue, which is the central control that will be exerted with a technology like that. We could keep using the US dollar and all they would have to do is change the law because right now individual citizens cannot have an account at the Fed. Uh, it's only commercial banks. So they are trying to change the law right now to make it possible. And you, you can go online. There's all kinds of calls for allowing the Fed to host accounts or, or open accounts for individual citizens. And when you think about it, that is your central bank digital currency because the dollar is already digitalized. Most of our transactions are already digital. Let me show you as I wrap this up, just a few things that I found right on the Federal Reserve.gov website. There's a frequently asked questions on CBDC. You can find out what they're saying about it. And some of the stuff is kind of interesting. Like, you know, what is a CBDC? There's a question there. Why is the Federal Reserve considering a CBDC now? What are the risks and things? But I want to point out a interesting theme. If you happen to read through it, see if you notice the same theme that I did. I'm going to search for the word on this page, and that word is SAFE. S-A-F-E. Now, it occurs eight times. And I want to read the sentences in which that word occurs and tell me or think about how it makes you feel. The question is, what 
Uh, will a U.S. CBDC replace cash or paper currency? The answer is the Federal Reserve is committed to ensuring the continued safety and availability of cash and is considering a CBDC as a means to expand safe payment options, not to reduce or replace them. So they're very concerned here. We want a safe money, a safe way of having transactions or payment options, safe payment options. Another place where it occurs. The Federal Reserve is charged with promoting monetary and financial stability and the safety and efficiency of the payment system and is studying how a CBDC could improve on an already safe and efficient U.S. domestic payments system. Dropping down to question number five, again, with the safety and liquidity that would entail. So a CBDC could potentially offer a range of benefits. For example, it could provide households and businesses a convenient electronic form of central bank money with the safety and liquidity that would entail. So again, if you have an account at the Fed, that is meant to be safe. Uh, they're saying, oh, well, that will be safe. Would a CBDC protect my privacy? Ooh, good question. How will that happen? This is the answer now. Any CBDC would need to strike an appropriate balance between safeguarding the privacy rights of consumers and affording the transparency necessary to deter criminal activity. So, hey, you know, this is all great. We're going to strike an appropriate balance between safeguarding your privacy while affording the transparency necessary to deter criminal activity. Well, all you have to do is redefine what criminal activity is, and now you can target anybody you want. Of course, you see where I think this could be going. Let's wrap this up with a couple of quotes that I think could be helpful as we think about these things. The first is by Ayn Rand, one of Gary Pinkerton's favorite authors and named his podcast after. This is what she says. The only power any government has is the power to crack down on criminals. Well, when there aren't enough criminals, one makes them. One declares so many things to be a crime that it becomes impossible for men to live without breaking laws. Interesting. So if they want to make a criminal out of you, all they have to do is make a law that violates uh, what you do socially in your social score, and now you're a criminal, and they can crack down on you. An interesting one from Adolf Hitler. You might find this fascinating. I know I did. The most foolish mistake we could possibly make would be to allow the subjugated races to possess arms. Interesting. He obviously did not care about or appreciate what is the Second Amendment in the U.S. Constitution, did he? We know that you're going to enact tyranny on a population. One of the first things that's done is they are de-armed. Uh, the weapons are taken away, especially guns. Guns are the, the great equalizer right now. And you might think, well, you know, I don't need a gun. That doesn't matter to me, whatever. And guns are for killing people and killing people's bad. So, so why should anybody have one? Well, there's a lot of really good quotes. I'll share the link to this 
particular page that I'm on, but I want to end with this quote by Tim Freeman. He said, When they took away the Fourth Amendment, I was silent because I don't deal drugs. When they took away the Sixth Amendment, I kept quiet because I know I'm innocent. When they took away the Second Amendment, I said nothing because I don't own a gun. Now they've come for the First Amendment, and I can't say anything at all. See, what's important ultimately is not necessarily the technical mechanisms by which they enforce tyranny, but it is the tyranny itself. And we know from a Christian worldview that men are inherently evil. If you disagree with me on that, we can talk about it. The Bible teaches this clearly that at the fall of man, mankind was cursed and born in sin. And all men under Adam, the doctrine of original sin and the headship of Adam, are born under sin. Now, not everybody lives out as gross of evils as some people, but nonetheless, that is the condition of the human heart, and it needs to be changed by Jesus Christ and him alone. That is the Christian worldview. But as we think about the social benefits, especially Christians in the Western world, if we take this for granted that the stability of our daily lives doesn't matter, and the only thing that matters is living a private life, a Christian life, uh, sharing the gospel. Ultimately, yes, absolutely that matters. But all the benefits that we are experiencing on a daily basis come from the freedoms and the liberties and the sacrifices that our previous generations have gone through to ensure and secure those freedoms. And as a millennial, I see the future being very different than the past. And I'm talking about the near future, uh, the next 20 to 30 years versus the last 20 to 30 years. Uh, The baby boomers were really the last generation to live in the absence of these tools that we call computers, these machines that I opened the show with. They have changed our life in countless ways, made them better, but we need to be good stewards of how they're used. Now, I want you to write into me, even if it's one word or one sentence, what do you think about the centralization of our payments system? The central bank digital currencies, if they drive everything through a central bank, As we saw, they're telling you the benefits as they see them for enforcement of policy. And that might be fine as long as you agree with the policies or the policies are good. But supposing the policies are not good, what do you think about that? Let me know. Letters at thewholesteward.com. I pray you found this helpful today. Until next week, now that you know more, go out and grow more. All content on The Whole Steward is for informational purposes only and must not be considered personal, professional, tax, or legal advice. Please consult an appropriate professional for individualized advice. Though we do our best to bring you reliable information, we make no guarantee on its accuracy. So you must rely on your own due diligence to draw your own conclusions. The views expressed by guests on the show are their own and may not represent that of the host. Please visit our website for complete terms and conditions.
Thanks for joining us today for the holistic approach to wealth from a Christian worldview. This show is brought to you by thewholesteward.com.